0: So today I am joined with Arnaud Delorme, who is a Ph.D. and is faculty at both the University of Toulouse, France, and the University of California, San Diego, and a consulting research scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Arnaud is a long-term meditator who is interested in testing the scientific hypothesis that consciousness is primary to matter and not the other way around. In collaboration with other researchers at IONS, he is developing a research program to test his hypothesis. Welcome, Arnaud.
1: Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, and I would like to give you the opportunity just to pronounce your name for our listeners in the correct way with the, with the French French uh, pronunciation because I I tried my best, but I'd like people to really know who you are and how it's pronounced.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure it's gonna help, but uh, yeah, my friend, the French pronunciation is Arnaud Delorme.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, so welcome. Welcome in being a guest on the Path 11 podcast. Um, I think that we're going to have an interesting conversation. I always really respect people that have minds like yours because I do not. Um, and it always fascinates me how people like yourself, when they're researching um, you know, consciousness and more of that scientific mind. It just, it just blows me away. So, um, I was wondering if you could start off by telling our listeners how you kind of got into this work.
1: So, for me, it started when I was, I think, in sixth grade, and I was in uh, Paris suburbs, and and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But um, at that time, I was in the courtyard, and I remember. Thinking well, I want to know why I'm here, and in my in my up, upbringing, you know, which was like Western country, it meant well. If you want to know why you're here, you need to you need to study the brain, and and figure out how it works. So that's how I started, and uh, like 10 or 15 years later, I got a PhD in in neuroscience. And then uh, I realized that science cannot give you all the answers. In particular, science can tell you why how things works, but it has problem with the why things are the way they are. And then I became interested in uh, spirituality.
0: Great. Wonderful. And, you know, I've had a conversation with um, a couple of other people that we've interviewed when we were talking about some near-death experiences and that whole question of, you know, consciousness, consciousness and the mind and is consciousness running the body or does consciousness live outside of the mind? And what have you found in your studies about that?
1: So, so my my whole hypothesis is that uh, there is more to the uh, there is more to consciousness than the body and the brain. So that's what I'm. I'm that's part of my research program, in which, uh, for instance, I study uh, medium and I see if it can be uh, both chance at um, at guessing information from pictures and things like that. And, uh, and the idea is that if they can, it means that uh, there is more to consciousness than the body and the brain. So that's, so my hypothesis is there is more than that. Now, uh, I haven't proven, and other people, some people think that it's it's been proven, other people think it's, you know, in, in the balance. For there's, even in mainstream science, I think the consensus is that the human brain is not the only Uh, device that can support consciousness like it's it, it would be very it would be very unlikely that humans in the whole universe are the only one that can have consciousness
0: right now i also understand that you're the originator of the widely used eeg lab signal processing environment for matlab so can you explain to us what that is and how how that came about
1: well, this started when I so when I arrived in in the U.S. in 2000, I wanted to process my data, my uh, brainwave data which I had collected in France, and uh, so I designed this software and then uh, with, in collaboration with other researcher. Uh, like Scott McKaig at the University of San Diego. We designed this tool and then people started using it and now it's the most widely used uh, academic software in academia and it's supported by the federal US government. And um, it's it's also linked to my uh, interest in consciousness in the sense that if you really want to understand how it works, you need to really understand how the tools with which you analyze the data uh, work, and you need you really need to find the best tool. And um, yeah.
0: And for people who aren't um, familiar with the EEG Lab signal processing environment for um, what you created, can you describe that a little bit more and how it's being used? What exactly is it, and what what are people using it for?
1: Yeah so if uh, if you go online on Amazon and you buy uh, one of his uh, mass market EEG system like you have the Muse for instance you can buy for $200 or if you are in academia and you have this expensive uh, EEG system which costs 10,000s of dollars then you collect some raw data and then you need to interpret these brain waves you collected and to do that you need a software so basically, it's like uh, you load the data in the software, and then you apply different processing step. It's a lot derived from signal processing, and then you try to find out where the activity comes from within the brain and which brain region communicate with each other, uh, depending on whatever you present it to to your uh, subjects or to yourself. So yeah, that's basically how 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 it works. To do some science from raw uh, brainwave data.
0: Yes. And, you know, I was on your website and you have a ton of publications um, of studies that you have done on meditation and mind wandering, um, the EEG signal processing, uh, brain computer interfaces. I do want to talk a little bit about uh, facial recognition later on. But um, one of the things that I found um, interesting when I was reading one of your publications is how you were studying mind wandering during meditation and that you also worked with people that were. Were doing different types of meditation, but there was one meditation in particular where uh, the meditators were able to shut off distraction and their mind wasn't wandering when they were, um, part of the study was that you would have certain sounds in the background to see if it would distract the person from the meditation. And I was wondering if you could talk more about that study.
1: Yeah, when I so when I started meditation myself um, more than 10 years ago, like 12 years ago, I realized my mind was wandering a lot. I was thinking a lot about other things. And if you look at the neuroscientific literature, so this was not treated at all in neuroscience. Like the fact that the mind would be focused on the task, like in this case, meditation. But there is also other applications like air traffic controller, etc. You just focus on the task and then your mind starts thinking about other things spontaneously. And what's very interesting with meditation is that you can't prevent your mind from doing that. You can you can prevent your mind from doing that for about two minutes, but then it's gonna automatically drift off and you're unaware of it until you realize, oh, I was just thinking about my grocery list when I'm supposed to be meditating. So I became very interested in that both because it was linked with my personal practice, and maybe I just mind wander more than other meditators, or, uh, and because it was a very interesting scientific uh, problem. And it's also linked to trying to find out with the brainwave analysis, if you're mind wandering, can we figure that out? And can we potentially build some neurofeedback device that would help you mind wander uh, less? So we've done some experiments in that uh, direction.
0: Yeah, and what I thought was interesting, when you were talking about when a person's mind begins to wander in meditation, it sounds like that there's a period of time where it's happening, but they're not conscious of it, and then all of a sudden they become conscious of it. And did you find at all in your studies about how long uh, in between those two, uh, how long that takes before the meditator becomes conscious that the mind has wandered?
1: we've done some statistics so basically what we do is we just people to ask to, we ask them to meditate and then count their breath and when they arrive at 10 they have to restart at 1 be aware of their breath and when they realize they lose the, they lost the count they have to press a button and then we have a questionnaire that appears that asks them how long do you think you you were off you drift off and most uh, most people would say about ten seconds, although it can go up to one minute, but it's usually around ten seconds. And the other thing I wanted to mention is we are one of the first uh, team that has showed that when you meditate, you actually decrease mind wandering. And like this mm. wasn't known before, even though that sounds obvious, you're meditating, you're learning to concentrate better. You probably mind wander less. You can't eliminate completely mind wandering, but you decrease the occurrence of mind wandering when you're meditating for, uh, like our expert meditators. When we compare to naive meditators, and we did a study in India, we showed that they had less mind wandering than, uh, the, the expert had less mind wandering than the naive ones.
0: And when a meditator is doing less mind-wandering, what parts of the brain are actually um, being activated and lighting up?
1: So there is a switch. Um, basically, you have uh, alpha alpha brainwave, which is about 10 hertz, and then you have theta brainwave, which is about uh, 5 hertz. And these two brainwaves uh, correspond to relaxation and transmission of information between different brain areas. Alpha is more the relaxation brainwave, and theta is more the communication brainwave. Well, we found different things, but the main thing that seems to happen is a switch between the two. <clears throat> when you're mind-wandering, you have more theta, so more communication between the brain, between brain areas, and you have less alpha. And then when you go back to concentration, alpha increase again, and theta uh, decrease. And this is widespread throughout the brain, although there are some brain regions which are more active. And others. So that's mainly what we think, what we what we observe.
0: And with with getting people into those different wave states, isn't it the th- the theta wave in which we're trying to work with the subconscious mind?
1: Yeah. Well, the theta wave is is the theta wave is is linked to um, executive functioning and working memory. Like for instance, if I ask you to remember some numbers, depending on the number of numbers I ask you to remember, if I ask you to remember two numbers or four numbers or five numbers or 10 numbers, then the activity in your frontal theta, so over the frontal area, frontal cortex, is proportional to the number of items I ask you to remember. So there is this part that theta represents uh, working memory, and also uh, FEDA represent, uh, also represents the activity of executive functioning, which can happen when you're making decisions, but it also can happen during meditation where you're actually trying to monitor your brain state. You have this self-awareness that tries to monitor itself. So we also observe increased frontal, uh, midline theta during meditation. And that's slightly different than the I the switch between theta and alpha I was mentioning before.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. And I wanted to go back. I had a couple more questions about the mind wandering and meditation. Um, because you were inspired to do this through your own meditation practice, have you found that when you were actually studying, um, you know, other people's brains and noticing what happens, have you gotten better at meditation? And do you find that your mind wanders less now?
1: um i've so my the my approach has been to try to devise a system where you can do real-time feedback or of your for instance your theta your activity in frontal areas because if you can do that then you can inform the person oh you probably mind wandering right now and then you can play a, a tune in the background for instance and the volume of the tune would just be a help to your meditation so you're just doing your standard meditation practice and then you have a tune in the background and the the amplitude of the tune depends if your mind wandering or if if the system thinks your mind wandering or not and can help you in your meditation and we're not we're not completely there yet we'll get there in the next couple of years but we're not completely there yet so So far, it hasn't helped me to improve on my meditation practice, but there is hope.
0: Okay. And um, maybe we can talk now, because you're kind of leading nicely into it, about neurofeedback. Can you explain for our listeners what neurofeedback is?
1: So neurofeedback is when you build uh, um, what we call a loop between you and the environment, in which you would, for instance, watch a screen or listen to a sound, and it would inform you about your own mental state. So, so, for instance, we have a neurofeedback experiment where we were trying to have people do exactly what I mentioned, increase their frontal, uh, their frontal theta. So they were watching a screen, and they basically see a square, and the color of the square depends on the amount of theta we observe in their brainwave in real time. And, of course, we wanted to see the effect this could have on their um, performance in a variety of, of tasks in which we usually detect mind wandering. And so they have to do the training many times. So they did the training, in this case, for two weeks. Every single day, they do the training for two weeks. They go in the system, and they, they try to have the square change the color, because the color of the square depends on their uh, frontal theta. And then we do experiments before, and we do experiments after to see if this has changed their behavior. And we also have a group of uh, of people. We get the same we get this the same feedback, but they don't actually link to the computer. So they get the feedback from someone else. because when we bring subject to the lab, very often, Uh, they are in a special, specific mindset, they're in uh, scientific laboratories, so this can influence their behavior as well. So to counteract with that, we have two groups. We have a group that gets the real feedback from their own brainwave in real time, and we have a group that gets uh, sham feedback from someone else, even though they think they get the real feedback. And actually, most people thought they got the real feedback, even though they didn't.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Um, And I also was reading um, through your site as well and was wondering if we could talk a little bit about coherence. Um, We have a a local place around here called the Albany Peace Project, and they are working, they're trying to get meditators um, to come in and basically set them up with some machines to bring their heart into coherence while they are meditating over uh, cities of high crime. And so when I was looking at some of your neurofeedback stuff and reading about coherence, it was reminding me of this project. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, the coherence. So what they call coherence there's a company that's called HeartMath that popularized this, this concept of yes. coherence. And it's really what happens is that When you're taking a deep breath, your heart is going to naturally accelerate, and when you're uh, exhaling, it slows down. So you have this oscillation in terms of the the heartbeat getting closer when you inhale and further when, when you exhale. And that's exactly what's called coherence. It's actually a system that's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia in which the heart modulates its speed based on the cycle of your breath. And the idea is that this modulation, if you're really stressed, for instance, this modulation might not happen because you're just thinking thousands of things and you're not relaxed and somehow your heart doesn't couple with your breath breath cycle. But if you're very relaxed, then the coupling occurs. So that's, that's the idea that you can detect basically the relaxation level of the person based on the coupling of the heart and the breath cycle. And um, yeah, so that's the idea. And maybe when you're very relaxed, you're more receptive to uh, to non-local consciousness uh, effect. And that's, that's the idea behind trying to, I don't know what they were doing in this city, but trying to influence crime locally or things like that.
0: Right, right. Okay, great. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and now, I, I know a lot of people, whoever has, um, I want to talk about some face recognition and uh, your contribution to that. And more recently, Facebook recently sent out, I don't know, I think it was either an email or they had some sort of update asking if you wanted to turn on facial recognition. So if your face popped up in somebody else's picture, you would automatically be tagged to it. And I know that you were working on um, designing neural networks to process natural images. And I was wondering if you could take us through the story of that work that you've been doing.
1: Yeah, so this uh, this was in my PhD where I was thinking, well, to... To understand consciousness, uh, I need to build neural network that can uh, simulate consciousness, and these are these are called connectionist neural networks. So there's a highly interconnected neural network, and what we do is that we put in some learning rule which are similar to one in in the brain. Of uh, for instance, in the brain you have neurons, and then you have synapses, and the synapses learn. So we put learning rules which are similar to the one in the brain. And then we present images to the neural network. And then we let it evolve on itself. And it starts to uh, recognize faces, basically. So that's the early work I was doing on neural network. And there's been a a regain of attention recently because of all the artificial intelligence hype. Because I did all my work about uh, 15 years ago on neural networks, and then I moved more to brainwave analysis. But recently, with the artificial intelligence uh, hype, they rediscovered that the technique we uh, were using 20, 25 years ago, if you happen to scale up the amount of data you give this neural network, and these are the, these are the same neural network they were using 25, 30 years ago, you can get very different results. So in the years 19... 19- 80s and 1990s, they were uh, feeding thousands of examples to neural networks, and and now they're feeding billions. It's, a, it's actually the same uh, principle, except when you feed billions, the neural networks are able to generalize uh, much better than when you feed uh, thousands. So this was one of the discovery, like five years ago with uh, uh, Google um, artificial intelligence
0: Right. And now cell phones can do it. I know like certain banks, I think one of my banks says that you could either choose fake uh, face recognition, your thumbprint or, you know, type in your code. But um, I mean, how, how safe is face recognition when you think about it in social networks and, and Facebook and stuff like that? Is there is there anything that threatens our security with selecting yes for all of these um, different options that we can do with face recognition?
1: Well, I mean, now I can, I can comment as a citizen how I feel about it. I don't, and it's all about whether you value your privacy or not. And there's pros and cons. And I'm not sure in which camp I am right now. I mean, the, the cons is uh, you don't want like a government that has control over everything because then it has too much power and it, it can misuse that power. At the same time, uh, you have all these small groups, small terrorist groups, which are uh, right now you can do incredible things with little technology. So even if one or two guys, very smart guy decides to uh, mess things up, he might have the power to do it just because there's so much technology right now. So these tools might be important in trying to figure out and finding these people in the past it hasn't been very successful we had this giant program and they were never able to find anybody but they don't have them they for sure won't won't be able to find them so i'm split you know we were like i very i value my privacy but at the same time i see the use of surveillance if we um uh, if we don't want an eccentric to uh, you know mess mess things up for everybody so i think it's a It's a trade-off. For sure, when you're putting your face on Facebook, uh, yeah, the US government sees it and then shares it with their allies. So, you know, everybody in the world knows you're on Facebook and this specific image and you probably will never be able to erase it because they want to keep the metadata. So even though they don't keep the picture, they will keep the fact that, you know, you were with these people on this image in a text file or something somewhere in 20 years, it's still going to be there. (laughs) Awesome.
0: Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Now, I I want to switch uh, gears one more time. I'd like to talk about the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And there may be listeners out there that have never heard of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So I was wondering if you could explain what the Institute does and then how you got involved with them and what you're working on now.
1: So the Institute was created in 1970 by astronaut Edgar Mitchell. When he came back from the moon, uh, he looked uh, he looked at Earth and he had this kind of uh, awakening experience similar to what people would call enlightenment in meditation, where he realized we're all connected and um, he wanted to make the Earth a better place. And also... Look at to, into the hypothesis that consciousness was not local and contained in the brain. There was more to consciousness than just our body. So this is the basis of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And the Institute of Noetic Sciences is basically a research center where you have scientists. There's like six scientists right now. We study different parts. I study neuroscience. There is a physicist that study quantum mechanics. There is a psychologist. There is a person that studies molecular biology and genetic expression. All different aspects of science linked to with the idea that consciousness is not local and and contained in the body. And there's also a retreat center where people come and they're being tested through a variety of of experiments to address this hypothesis.
0: And are you guys looking for people to actually come there to be a part of these um, studies? Is that something that people, uh, if we have some listeners, we have a lot of listeners actually out in California, um, is that something that the institute is always looking for?
1: We're always looking for funding to do new experiments. We're not necessarily looking for people. Because the system that's in place right now is that, so there is a retreat center that, well, that in which there is a 5,000 people come every year and they just run their own workshops. So, so, but every time there is a new group that comes, they're being tested. So we're able to find talents like this, like for instance, if somebody has an incredible talent in telepathy, we have all these tests that people go through when they arrive and when they leave. Uh, and and uh, so we, we don't need more subjects right now, but we need funding. So if people are interested in talking to us about their interest in this topic, we're definitely interested in talking to them.
0: All right, great, wonderful. Um, and I guess my, my last question is I know that you were talking about how sometimes, you know, science can be a little bit limited when we are trying to prove that consciousness exists, you know, outside of the, the physical body. But if we are able to prove that, then what? What do you feel like that means to you?
1: Well the my I mean I see science, at least for myself as a, in, in India we have like the the Patanjali Sutra which are basically the different path of yoga. I can't remember. I'm not expert in yoga. I think there's 12th path to yoga. There's the mental path. There's the devotional path. I just see science as my path personally. So if I'm able to uh, demonstrate uh, demonstrate that uh, consciousness is non-local, then because I'm, I'm, even though I believe in the hypothesis, not my whole uh, mind is convinced yet. So if I get convinced, then uh, as if it's if I consider this as my spiritual path, you know, maybe I'll have a, more of an enlightenment science experience, and I'll become a better person. And since everything is connected, you know, it's going to make the world a better place. So that's how I see my personal path. And when we look at the big picture, obviously, if we show that everything is connected. there's going to be less violence. You're not going to hurt your neighbor if it's it's part of you. and It's been shown by science that it's part of you. So people will be uh, kinder with each other. And maybe in the long run, there's a lot of uh, people we say, actually, we don't observe other civilization in the universe because they tend to disappear after they reach a certain level of technology. They just annihilate themselves. So maybe we can go beyond that if we're able to show that we're all connected
0: great well thank you so much it was a pleasure having you on our podcast and um, if you can let our listeners know what your website is because you have some um, amazing publications on there i mean people that really love um, reading research articles and stuff like that you have a ton of them so a ton of publications on there so can you let our listeners know where they can find you
1: yeah, my website is uh, www.arnodelorme.com. And I know my name is hard to pronounce and hard to spell, so I guess it's going to be written underneath the postcast. And when you just type my name, nospace.com, and you'll find my website.
0: All right. Well, wonderful. And thank you so much for your wonderful contributions to uh, the exploration of consciousness. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!